section forty five of english literature by william j long this librivox recording is in the public domain chapter ten continued george gordon lord byron seventeen eighty eight eighteen twenty four there are two distinct sides to byron and his poetry one good the other bad and those who write about him generally describe one side or the other in superlatives thus one critic speaks of his splendid and imperishable excellence of sincerity and strength another of his gaudy charlatanry blare of brass and big bow-wowishness as both critics are fundamentally right we shall not here attempt to reconcile their differences which arise from viewing one side of the man's nature and poetry to the exclusion of the other before his exile from england in eighteen sixteen the general impression made by byron is that of a man who leads an irregular life poses as a romantic hero makes himself out much worse than he really is and takes delight in shocking not only the conventions but the ideals of english society his poetry of this first period is generally though not always shallow and insincere in thought and declamatory or bombastic in expression after his exile and his meeting with shelley in italy we note a gradual improvement due partly to shelley's influence and partly to his own mature thought and experience we have the impression now of a disillusioned man who recognizes his true character and who though cynical and pessimistic is at least honest in his unhappy outlook on society his poetry of this period is generally less shallow and rhetorical and though he still parades his feelings in public he often surprises us by being manly and sincere thus in the third canto of childe harold written just after his exile he says in my youth's summer i did sing of one the wandering outlaw of his own dark mind and as we read on to the end of the splendid fourth canto with its poetic feeling for nature and its stirring rhythm that grips and holds the reader like martial music we lay down the book with profound regret that this gifted man should have devoted so much of his talent to describing trivial or unwholesome intrigues and posing as the hero of his own verses the real tragedy of byron's life is that he died just as he was beginning to find himself life byron was born in london in seventeen eighty eight the year preceding the french revolution we shall understand him better and judge him more charitably if we remember the tainted stock from which he sprang his father was a dissipated spendthrift of unspeakable morals his mother was a scotch heiress passionate and unbalanced the father deserted his wife after squandering her fortune and the boy was brought up by the mother who alternately petted and abused him in his eleventh year the death of the grand-uncle left him heir to newstead abbey and to the baronial title of one of the oldest houses in england he was singularly handsome and a lameness resulting from a deformed foot lent a suggestion of pathos to his make-up 
all this with his social position his pseudo-heroic poetry and his dissipated life over which he contrived to throw a veil of romantic secrecy made him a magnet of attraction to many thoughtless young men and foolish women who made the downhill path both easy and rapid to one whose inclinations led him in that direction naturally he was generous and easily led by affection he is therefore largely a victim of his own weakness and of unfortunate surroundings at school at harrow and in the university at cambridge byron led an unbalanced life and was more given to certain sports from which he was not debarred by lameness than to books and study his school life like his infancy is sadly marked by vanity violence and rebellion against every form of authority yet it was not without its hours of nobility and generosity scott describes him as a man of real goodness of heart and the kindness and best feelings miserably thrown away by his foolish contempt of public opinion while at cambridge byron published his first volume of poems hours of idleness in eighteen o seven a severe criticism of the volume in the edinburgh review wounded byron's vanity and threw him into a violent passion the result of which was the now famous satire called english bards and scotch reviewers in which not only his enemies but also scott wordsworth and nearly all the literary men of his day were satirized in heroic couplets after the manner of pope's dunciad it is only just to say that he afterwards made friends with scott and with others whom he had abused without provocation it is interesting to note in view of his own romantic poetry that he denounced all masters of romance and accepted the artificial standards of pope and dryden his two favorite books were the old testament and a volume of pope's poetry of the latter he says his is the greatest name in poetry all the rest are barbarians in eighteen o nine byron when only twenty-one years of age started on a tour of europe and the orient the poetic results of this trip were the first two cantos of child harold's pilgrimage with their famous descriptions of romantic scenery the work made him instantly popular and his fame overshadowed scott's completely as he says himself i awoke one morning to find myself famous and presently he styles himself the grand napoleon of the realms of rhyme the worst element in byron at this time was his insincerity his continual posing as the hero of his poetry his best works were translated and his fame spread almost as rapidly on the continent as in england even goethe was deceived and declared that a man so wonderful in character had never before appeared in literature and would never appear again now that the tinsel has worn off and we can judge the man and his work dispassionately we see how easily even the critics of the age were governed by romantic impulses the adulation of byron lasted only a few years in england in eighteen fifteen he married miss milbank an english heiress who abruptly left him a year later with womanly reserve she kept silence 
but the public was not slow to imagine plenty of reasons for the separation this together with the fact that men had begun to penetrate the veil of romantic secrecy with which byron surrounded himself and found a rather brassy idol beneath turned the tide of public opinion against him he left england under a cloud of distrust and disappointment in eighteen sixteen and never returned eight years were spent abroad largely in italy where he was associated with shelley until the latter's tragic death in eighteen twenty two his house was ever the meeting-place for revolutionists and malcontents calling themselves patriots whom he trusted too greatly and with whom he shared his money most generously curiously enough while he trusted men too easily he had no faith in human society or government and wrote in eighteen seventeen i have simplified my politics to an utter detestation of all existing governments during his exile he finished child harold the prisoner of chillon his dramas cain and manfred and numerous other works in some of which as in don juan he delighted in revenging himself upon his countrymen by holding up to ridicule all that they held most sacred in eighteen twenty four byron went to greece to give himself and a large part of his fortune to help that country in its struggle for liberty against the turks how far he was led by his desire for posing as a hero and how far by a certain vigorous viking spirit that was certainly in him will never be known the greeks welcomed him and made him a leader and for a few months he found himself in the midst of a wretched squabble of lies selfishness insincerity cowardice and intrigue instead of the heroic struggle for liberty which he had anticipated he died of fever in missolonghi in eighteen twenty four one of his last poems written there on his thirty-sixth birthday a few months before he died expresses his own view of his disappointing life my days are in the yellow leaf the flowers and fruits of love are gone the worm the canker and the grief are mine alone works of byron in reading byron it is well to remember that he was a disappointed and embittered man not only in his personal life but also in his expectation of a general transformation of human society as he pours out his own feelings chiefly in his poetry he is the most expressive writer of his age in voicing the discontent of a multitude of europeans who were disappointed at the failure of the french revolution to produce an entirely new form of government and society hours of idleness one who wishes to understand the whole scope of byron's genius and poetry will do well to begin with his first work hours of idleness written when he was a young man at the university there is very little poetry in the volume only a striking facility in rhyme brightened by the devil-may-care spirit of the cavalier poets but as a revelation of the man himself it is remarkable in a vain and sophomoric preface he declares that poetry is to him an idle experiment and that this is his first and last attempt to amuse himself in that line 
curiously enough as he starts for greece on his last fatal journey he again ridicules literature and says that the poet is a mere babbler it is this despising of the art which alone makes him famous that occasions our deepest disappointment even in his magnificent passages in a glowing description of nature or of a hindu woman's exquisite love his work is frequently marred by a wretched pun or by some cheap buffoonery which ruins our first splendid impression of his poetry longer poems byron's later volumes manfred and cain the one a curious and perhaps unconscious parody of faust the other of paradise lost are his two best-known dramatic works aside from the question of their poetic value they are interesting as voicing byron's excessive individualism and his rebellion against society the best known and the most readable of byron's works mazeppa the prisoner of chillon and child harold's pilgrimage the first two cantos of child harold eighteen twelve are perhaps more frequently read than any other work of the same author partly because of their melodious verse partly because of their descriptions of places along the lines of european travel but the last two cantos eighteen sixteen eighteen eighteen written after his exile from england have more sincerity and are in every way better expressions of byron's mature genius scattered through all his works one finds magnificent descriptions of natural scenery and exquisite lyrics of love and despair but they are mixed with such a deal of bombast and rhetoric together with much that is unwholesome that the beginner will do well to confine himself to a small volume of well-chosen selections note see selections for reading and bibliography at the end of this chapter end of note byron is often compared with scott as having given to us europe and the orient just as scott gave us scotland and its people but while there is a certain resemblance in the swing and dash of the verses the resemblance is all on the surface and the underlying difference between the two poets is as great as that between thackeray and bulwer lytton scott knew his country well its hills and valleys which are interesting as the abode of living and lovable men and women byron pretended to know the secret unwholesome side of europe which generally hides itself in the dark but instead of giving us a variety of living men he never gets away from his own unbalanced and egotistical self all his characters in cain manfred the corsair the jaour child harold don juan are tiresome repetitions of himself a vain disappointed cynical man who finds no good in life or love or anything naturally with such a disposition he is entirely incapable of portraying a true woman to nature alone especially in her magnificent moods byron remains faithful and his portrayal of the night and the storm and the ocean in child harold are unsurpassed in our language end of section forty five